this week we are joined by Robert A. Martin from Panama City, Panama. Robert is one of the co-founders of the restaurant Intimo in Panama City, a farm-to-table establishment that has won numerous awards for its concept, food, cocktails, and service. Originally born in Massachusetts, Robert moved to Panama at a young age. After finishing high school, Robert moved back to the U.S. to continue his studies, and that is when he got his start in the industry and developed his love of spirits, wine, and cocktails. Robert is very passionate about his craft, and we really enjoyed our interview with him. So on to the show. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Industry Podcast. I am Kip. This is Dan. What's happening, man? Uh, not too much. Uh, just enjoying the lovely, nice weather. You seem to have uh, spring has sprung. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to snow next week, so That's don't get too much excited. That happened, uh, that happened last year, too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're uh, recording this one on March 22nd, and we have actually had some nice weather. We've moved into... Uh, we got surprised by our wonderful oh. premier, Doug Ford, oh, by... The, the commandant? Yeah, Friday <laughs> night at 7 o'clock. He told us that as of Saturday, we could now increase our capacity from 10 people to 50. So I'm sure that sent a lot of people scrambling all over the city. Just the way we like to do it here in Ontario, yeah. I guess. Yeah, figure shit out at the last second. Yeah, but 50 is better than 10, so who, yeah. who am I to complain? So we have a great guest for you as usual. Uh, we're going to be bringing in Robert A. Martin very shortly from uh, the Republic of Panama. Uh, what, what else is going on with you, Dan? Anything to report before we get going here? Uh, no, no. Uh... All is going well. Still saving the world one ship at a time in my day job. Um, how's the business going with you with this increase in uh, numbers? Well, uh, I'm trying to get the new place open and I'm trying to keep the old place open. <laughs> so that's, well, all we're, uh, that's all we're doing right now. Fucking, good luck with that juggling act. Yes, it's it's a hell of a ride. But enough about us. Let's let our listeners know once again, of course, if you love the show, you should be subscribing, you should be rating, you should be reviewing. You should be listening every week. We've had some great episodes in the archives recently. If you want to be on the show, you should DM us at the Industry Podcast. That's the best way to get a hold of us. If you have a service industry story you'd like to tell. And once uh, once again, and always, a big shout out to at Zach Hanna Design for all the lovely artwork he does for us. Correct. There'll always be uh, links in the show notes as well for the guests and Zach as well. So make sure you check those out. Okay, so enough about us. Let's get to our terrific guest for this week's episode of the Industry Podcast. We're bringing in Robert A. Martin. How are you, Robert? Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure. Doing pretty good. Good. Enjoying a day off today. Right. A closed, closed restaurant on Mondays. It's a smart move. During <laughs> <laughs> uh, COVID, you wanted to be open all the time, but <laughs> yeah, it, it's good to rest. You have to. Yeah, mentally, for sure. I know running a business sure. is fucking hard work. So let's uh, start, actually, how we always have to start these shows these days. What's the what's the service industry situation with COVID going on in uh, the Republic of Panama? Like, what are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do? So, so in Panama, it was crazy when it first... I mean, here we got shut down in March, the 8th of March, and it was just straight-up prohibition. There was yeah. no liquor sales. There was nothing. Ooh, no liquor sales. Ooh. No liquor sales. You couldn't sell. No. You can sell liquor. So we had our little prohibition that lasted for about three months. Um, Panama's super infamous for liquor consumption. We've been <laughs> leading per capita in beer consumption. We've won that award a couple of times in the last 20 years. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah, the highest consumption. Of so the government kind of strategized that, you know what? Let's shut these guys down. Let's not let them drink. Let's keep it under control because at the same time, we had the stories about Spain and Italy where people were still drinking and people were getting COVID at bars. Mm. Uh, a lot of marketing behind that too, as well, obviously from the governments trying to get people not to, to go out drinking or to restaurants. So mm -hmm. we were shut down completely and you could only go out on the days of the last number of your ID card or your, your we call them cedula. So it was insane. It was at a certain time of day, you would go out, do groceries. It was crazy. And that lasted for about six months or so. We opened up again and then things were going well. And then we started getting spikes in, in December. Obviously, everyone was going out, buying Christmas presents, going mm -hmm. to restaurants, la, la, la. And we had a spike in numbers and boom, they shut us down and we opened back up. At the end of January, beginning of February, we were opened up for a second time. And it's been running smoothly. I mean, um, we're happy. You can only have 25% of 
of capacity in your restaurant. So if you declared you're a uh, 50, you have 50 seats or whatnot, 12.5 customers, et cetera. So what we've done is like, we had to expand the business. We had to create a terrace. So we, I have a farm to table restaurant and we have a garden in the back and we had to expand the terrace, put a roof so we could add more tables. Mm-hmm. And that's how we kind of got around this so we could add more people. So right now we have a capacity of 25, but it's always been a small place. Intimo means intimate and it only fits at one time. It would only fit maximum between terrace inside. 30 people. It's all very detailed. Chefs come out and talk to you. Ooh, um, cool. The bartenders as well. It's, it's all very, very close, which kind of goes against the COVID law or whatnot. So yeah. <laughs> we had to rebrand everything, make it a little more... It's fine dining, but we had to create it a little more casual, change the food a little bit so we could get it. people kind of straining away from the idea that was just closed intimate and that was it so we had to we have to we had to adapt to that whole situation Mm -hmm. and that's been relatively smooth for you or it's been working it's 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 we really thought people were just gonna shut down and not go out it's been relatively smooth people have come out um especially younger people like before we'd have a crowd between 27 and on up and now we have these younger um, customers coming in twenty between eighteen and twenty seven. Hmm. Because I think um, there's this trend in the last few years where people between tw- eighteen to twenty seven, eighteen to thirty, have been traveling because it's just that much easier to travel at that age today than what it was when I was a kid. I mean, I remember from the U.S. to China, from Panama to China, it was a twenty two hundred dollar ticket. Now it's down to twelve hundred dollars. So oh. kids were traveling a lot, looking for experience. And now that they're not being able to travel, I think they're looking for experience in bars and restaurants. Mm-hmm. So that's been a pro for us because before they were probably, a, they were a little scared of, hey, I'm going to go to restaurants, spend this money. I could be saving it. That young economy it has adapted now to say, you know what, let's go check out what we have locally, which, right. which happens just not as much as, as we're seeing it right now. Mm-hmm. And, and that's helped a lot. That's helped a lot. Oh, nice. Well, that's good. Well, and it's uh, so I want to get into all about uh, the Intimo and how that all started for you. But let's uh, back up to like sort of how you got going in the business. You grew up in Panama, but you were born in, in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yeah, I was born in right? Yeah. Creek, Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, right. And then, okay, so how old were you when you moved to Panama? I moved back to Panama when I was five. Okay, so yeah, that, and then you lived there for how long before you moved back to the U.S.? I, I lived here till I was 19, then moved back, to, I mean, 21. I jumped back and forth from the States for a little while. So I was born in Concord, moved to Panama when I was a kid. My dad's from New York, my mom's from Panama. We moved here, went to high school here um, in the old Panama Canal zone. Oh, and okay. then in 2000, when that all went back, I went to high school for the last few years. In a, in a private school, a local private school. And then from there, took a sabbatical for about a year, went to Florida State University and ended up deciding I wanted to go to New York for naval architecture. So I actually moved to the States, for moved to Atlanta for a year. And then I start working at a restaurant while I'm there because I had an aunt of mine. Her husband was an officer in the Air Force. And this was what, 2005? He goes to Iraq and they had just had a baby. And I was like, well, I'll stay with you for a little while. Check out Atlanta, see what's going on there. And then I worked at a restaurant called Casey's Southern Cuisine, which was super laid back, fun, casual place that made Southern cuisine. And and I kind of liked the whole ambiance. I liked the whole idea, the camaraderie that there was behind the, the restaurant team and everything. And there was a really great guy that owned the place was called Casey's Korean guy, which was funny because he was made probably the best Southern cuisine food in the whole (laughs) 10 kilometer radius. It was insane. And, um, but super cool guy had been in the military in Korea, moved to, to, to somewhere in the South. I'm not sure where, when he first started, but he fell in love with Southern food and started making Southern cuisine. And then from there, I moved to New York in 2006 and while I'm studying naval architecture, New York's super expensive. Yeah. So I had a partial scholarship, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And New York is insanely expensive. And um, so I was like, I have to, uh, obviously I have to work. Um, I wanted to work. 
I start working at a at a place called Ferraro's, which was uh, they declare that they're the first espresso bar of America. There's another place in Chicago that says the same thing, but this was in <laughs> Little Italy, and this was in Little Italy, and I went to go watch a soccer game. Uh, Italy was playing; it was a Euro Cup or whatever, and um, I remember I got hammered drinking beers with a couple of friends, and then um, I was like, you know what? Let me get an espresso before. I jump on the train and go back home. So I get this espresso at Ferraris. Everybody's like, you got to go to Ferraris. Um, I get an espresso and I start talking to the manager there. And the guy's, hey, are you working? What's going on with you? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, I'm actually looking for a job. And the guy gave me a job right there on the on the buck with, with me being buzzed off drinking Peronis or whatnot. Oh, nice. <laughs> all afternoon. <laughs> and the guy was like, dude, I, I we, have a, we have a job here for you if you want one. I was like, ah, cool. He's like, you want me to come and interview? He's like, no, you don't even have to interview. Just come in. So I started the following the following week, learned all about coffee, Italian roast, had to wear a suit with a tie. Oh, it was wow. insane. It was fun. Met a lot of people. And then from there, I just started jumping from place to place and um, just being recommended, which was crazy. Because something that's cool about New York is, I think that's anywhere. You do a good job, you'll just start recommending you other places or whatnot. And I kind of wanted to do something different. I, I, I still wasn't sure about the whole industry yet. So I get this apartment on the Upper West Side. And out of nowhere, a friend of a friend was opening up a restaurant called Campo, is an Italian restaurant. And she tells me, hey, there's this friend of mine opening up a new restaurant. They're doing the whole farm to table, classic cocktails, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm like, yeah, let me go check it out. I went and interviewed and stayed there at Campo for at least five years. And from there, I went to floor manager, to bar manager, as bartending, then to bar manager. And then I took over the place for like a little hint of a time. And then I fell in love with wines. Mm. Then from there, I go to this place called, um, uh, what was it? It was Artisanal, which was, uh, they were specialized in French wine and they were specialized in cheeses. Artisanal for my year. And um, so I, st- I I was there for about three months. And for the first month, you had to learn about 100 wines and 50 types of cheeses, et cetera, to get the job. So I get the job and I was loving it. And uh, classic French bistro with a little twist. They also did the whole farm to table. And um, I get offered an amazing job as a bar manager at this place called Hotel Chantel. So I was kind of... It was nerve-wracking because these guys were willing to work with my school schedule and work with and work with me as a as a head bartender. The guy that hired me there, his name was James Chachi. He worked at Campo, the place I was before that. It was a it was like I was on a balance trying to figure out like I'm loving wine right now. I'm loving everything I'm learning here, but there's this awesome opportunity on this side with cocktails, doing wine, and kind of leading the program myself. Uh, The balance tilted towards that so i went to hotel Chantel. it was funny because i was there for six months and within the restaurant group they had it's called revel they had another place called penthouse 808 and they were having difficulties with someone taking over the bar program there and it was in queens and long island city in this up-and-coming neighborhood and they were like well we'll let you do whatever you want there as well um but we would like to put you over there so it wasn't much of a decision. It was, but it was within the same company. So I ended up being there for five years. I loved it. I mean, I I got into the whole cocktails with the whole cocktail program, and um, because we were actually paying someone a ridiculous amount of money to come in every seasonally and make our cocktails for us, and I was like, ah, I think we can do this. I think we have enough. Of, we have a lot. We have a smart crew here, and we, I think we can do this ourselves. So. We started hitting all these great cocktail bars, trying to figure out what made a great cocktail joint. We were going to Death & Co, Milk & Honey, just checking out the vibe, trying to figure out what made a great cocktail program. And we started doing it ourselves. And we just started experimenting with the staff and doing tastings and trying to push the envelope for a volume place, but not too artistic, not too detailed trying to batch as much as we could and learning about that. And yes, it it took a whole different direction in my life. I fell in love and that's where I was like, this is what I'm doing 
forever, I think. <laughs> oh, nice. So I have a couple of questions about that. Uh, first of all, you're saying like, okay, you went to some of these other classic cocktail bars in New York, Death & Co, Milk & Honey, like the, the main the main classic ones. And so you're learning from the, what they're doing. Did you also like pick up some literature, any of the big craft cocktail books to try and help? Or do you mostly do it in, in like a hands-on I, way? I picked up Dale's DeGrasse book back then and I picked up Dale DeGrasse. I picked up a little bit from the what's that called the the companion oh what's it called it's it's a two volume book about this guy that traveled charles baker he traveled all through europe south america he wrote a book about his, his stories him drinking in different places in the u.s europe and then he opened up a second one which was uh, the great gentleman's companion to south america okay. and then when i pick up cool. this book I find out that there's cocktails that were made in Panama. Champagne cocktail was invented in Panama in 1860. And then I find out about the Birds of Paradise, which is like a Ramos Gin Fizz, but with raspberry syrup. And it blew my mind because I was like, well, I had no idea that there was this cocktail culture in Panama. Mm -hmm. And that's the other part that ended up like kind of hooking me and telling me like, you know what, this is something maybe you should move but yeah that that was the kind of literature i was looking at and i was looking mm -hmm. i i really based myself off dale de Graff at that moment because that was the old the like he was like the modern guy that was doing had done all this great work and rediscovering cocktails and kind of anchored myself off that and then talking to bartenders more than anything at these other places at toys only as well and and talking to them about their culture and how they worked and and, and how they did things and that's kind of how I got into the whole creating a system. This place, Penthouse 808, had a Asian cuisine, a Southern Pacific Polynesian Asian cuisine with Japanese, Hawaiian. So from there, I just started working with like, so what, what do they drink or what do they eat in Hawaii, Japan? And started playing with sake, playing with mangoes and all this stuff. And yes, and it was a, it was a selected crew of bartenders plus captains of the staff and if someone likes something, we had to make sure that at least the general team would, would were on the same side. Because I love stuff that sometimes people tell me, like, right. I wouldn't drink that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I'd have one. You know what I mean? I'd have yeah. one of those. Um, I love absinthe, but not everybody loves anisette and Sambuca. Mm -hmm. And I used to love, I still do, every once in a while, play with certain cocktails. But here in Panama, it's a whole different story. Yeah, I imagine. Had to adapt a whole different culture. So we'll we'll stick with the York Fridge a little bit, and then we'll move on to what you started doing in Panama. So you're making all these, you're now like making lists with your staff, your team, that the new bar. And uh, how important do you feel that sort of communal testing of cocktails is where, like you said, because we've had a few, quite a few people on the show who have done it the same way, done it as a team. It's like everybody tries it, but everybody's kind of got to get behind it for it to, yeah, to make exactly. your list type thing. Do you feel like that's really important? I think it's superbly important. I mean, it, it, it's 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 something I learned way when I was working at Artisto, the whole, it, you realize what kind of sommelier a restaurant has when you look at their wine list and, and, and you taste different wines, you feel like, okay, there's a, there's a lot of acidity going on. It's just part of the Psalm, but the Psalm always has to try wine with everybody. Mm -hmm. It's not, Hey, you could love high levels of acidity or funkiness. And I think that it's, it's very selfish. That's on my side. I think it's a little selfish when you, when you don't try sharing it with a team or trying to get a general view because, I mean, you get people from all walks of life that come in and, hey, someone might really like sweet cocktails. Someone might like a lot of salt on their margaritas. Mm -hmm. But having a, uh, that general consensus, I think, is just, it just gives you a, a better northern, uh, northern, that north star direction of, okay, this is, this is what's working. This is the way. I think this is what everyone's getting on board on. I think it's super important. Yeah, and you're right that um – the thing is, everybody has different tastes, everybody has different palates. So like, it's very easy when, and I, I like how you brought it back to like the whole idea about wine, because it's very easy to be like, well, this is the kind of wine I like. So this is, I'm going to make all the, like, for instance, I'm like a total whore for Italian wine. But so like, I really have to watch myself when I'm making my list at my bar. So it's not just all fucking Italian stuff, right? Yeah. Like, so because I'm like, not everybody likes it. Some people like a, like a, 
California cab, <laughs> you know, but I like, the, so I really got to watch myself and I got to catch myself. I'm like, okay, that's not for me, but you got to, cause you got to have something for everybody. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I, and it's, 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 it's important because sometimes I feel like I, I talk to friends and every and other people in the industry. And, and what happens is that you get to, you learn so much, you read so much, you, you put a lot of education into yourself when you're, when you're, getting behind anything from a director of beverage point of view, from beer to wine, blah, blah, blah. And you look into it. And sometimes people are like, well, the thing is my staff, maybe they're not there yet. Or they're still growing into the system or, or have a very young staff. And, and, and I can see how some people can get selfish about it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where you have to measure it. You, yeah. You have to know where you're at with your team. You have to know where you're at with, um, with, with, with your chef as well, because, Hell, my, my chef uses a lot of fat in his food. Maybe I, mm. I have to take a little more acidic wines or I have to get more into those robust Italian wines or Spanish wines and, and so forth. And then and then you have the whole um, natural wine renaissance or whatnot. Um, I call it renaissance because hey, I, uh, wine was being made like this 100 years ago. It just yeah, took a exactly. whole different move. And now it's it's back to like, you know what, let's go back to what, what it was, what, what wine really was before. And then understanding that as well, which is a whole different world. I mean, uh, you can buy wine from the same producer every year that makes natural wine. And every year it can taste completely different. Mm -hmm. So then trying to get people on board to understand that your customers, your team. So you, you have to like really put depth into it when you decide that you want your team to get behind and try something with cocktails it gets a little easier but like when i have a younger younger guys that come in i i let everyone try even even people who are here doing their 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 practice term or whatnot from school and and, and seeing how much they love sweet same way when i was a kid i used to love drinking sweet stuff and, that, and then you just start growing a palate and, and just going a whole different direction from what you were doing 15 20 years ago or whatnot so Trying to understand that and trying to also form them to understand why a cocktail is what it is um, or a glass of wine is what it is, it is super important. But it's, it's, it's fun. To ha I think it's super fun also like to get people to understand, even if you have a young team, that, hey, you have to understand where we're at right now, why this works and why your palate is where it's at right now. I mean, you might love sweet and sour like never tomorrow. I, I, you might love piling down daiquiris and not have any acid reflux but once you hit that 35 mark and start going up you're drinking lactate pills like no tomorrow it's a whole different story it's a whole different story no i really like how you said that because i was as you were talking i was just thinking about something that i never really thought about before and i think it's getting to what you're talking about which is that maybe it's kind of a good idea for your team to have people from many different age groups and with different developments of palate on staff because yeah, like the maybe you've got like a 20 year old whose palate is not quite developed yet. And they do like the really sugary, sweet stuff. We're not trying to stereotype, but that's often the case. But then you're also going to have customers who want that, too. So you kind of like can balance out your list a little bit by being like, oh, a 20 year old came up with this cocktail or like this cocktail. And like me at my age, I would never drink that. But it's but it's good to know that like a 20 year old might want that cocktail or the, or a certain kind of wine, like a big, super juicy, bold California cab or something like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then and then, exactly. and then having an older veteran palate on board as well to to speak to the people of that age group and that to sort of develop palate might come in. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly that's mm -hmm. exactly the idea for sure. So at some point, you make the decision to move back to Panama. Uh, now, when you decided to move back, did you already have the idea of opening your own place in mind? or? Yeah, that was, that was, that was in the back of my mind. Around 2009, 2010, I, I, I quit naval architecture. I go into finance because I'm like, no one in my family is a bookkeeper or an accountant or knows anything about numbers. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to study finance and have a better background in that and understand how you start a business, et cetera. I, it really doesn't matter because you see all kinds of curveballs when you start opening your own business and right. you have partners and everybody's got different ideas. But that was the direction I took. And then I'm, I started doing little consulting gigs or even working at new places for free just so I could see what was going on. Like I, I, I remember I got this snack for tequila and a friend of mine, Michael Weatherby, had just taken over this restaurant from um, 
a place called La Cenita, the small dinner it was called. Um, and they had like this huge, crazy variety of tequilas and mezcales. And I was getting deep into tequila in 2009, 2010. I was like, Mike, I'll come in and just check it out and see what, and help with the opening or whatnot. And, and it was EMM group was this group that was just growing super fast had super fun restaurants. People were just really behind the organization. Like they'd open up a restaurant and it was just boom, success. So I was like, I need to find out what these guys are doing right. So I worked there for about a month. No, about two two months. Just moved in and, and, and learned a little bit while I was still um, the director of beverage at a Ravel group or whatnot. So I, I maintained all of that while taking two classes at, at oh, during man. a semester or whatnot. Like... I, I, I extended it the most I could call it yeah. or whatnot. But um, yeah, so I was always trying to pick up little things here and there because it's so interesting when you see other people's views and angles about how they do business or whatnot and how they change things to try to make a place successful. So I did that for a while. I remember my business partner today, his name is Car- Carlos Alba, Car- Carlos. He flies up with his girlfriend and starts talking about restaurants and um, taking a year or two back, I had flown into Panama for vacation and um, I was with some friends drinking at this bar called Republic and we're there drinking and, and I see Carlos running through with his chef's jacket. The last time I spoke to him, he, he was studying engineering and it was insane seeing him in the chef's jacket. So I stopped him and we started talking. I'm like, so what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, I'm working at this restaurant that does farm to table right now in Panama called Maito, which is today... Um, ranked within the 50 best restaurants of Latin America. It's like 22, I think. And um, back then they were just starting. And, I, and then he told me, nah, you got to check this place out, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, cool. And then we just started running ideas, uh, drinking beer. And then we stayed in contact for at least two or three years, just staying in contact, talking about what was going on in Panama, what I was doing in New York. So I, I come, he flies up and he's like, I'm ready. I'm like, you're ready for what? He's like, I'm ready to open up a restaurant. And I was like, damn you, son. (laughs) I had all these ideas floating in the air. I wanted to go to California. Um, I had this crazy idea. I was going to finish class and just take a little break and drive by a a motorcycle, drive to California and learn as much as I could from a couple of vineyards I had in mind back then. So that gets cut out. I fly down to Panama and we do an event together at a restaurant that only does first restaurant in Panama that ever does tasting menus called Don de Jose. We go there, we do this. He does a collaboration with the chef. I do a pairing for the dinner and it was insane. I, I Back then, I couldn't believe people were paying $75 for a tasting menu in Panama and $50 for a, for a wine pair. And I was like, or a cocktail pair and whatever. And I was like, let's, I was very skeptical about it. So we go there. We do the dinner and everybody's just raving and they loved it. And they're asking us to, to do a couple more days. And we did two days of dinners and they were like, no, you got you to gotta do more. And I was like, I was pumped. I was hooked. And I was like, you know what? I think Panama's ready for this. We, we had a really good experience together. And then the following year, it was just like, we're going to open this. I don't care what happens. We're going to meet with um, investors, blah, 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 la, la, la. And, and at the end of the day, it was four guys that got together, my chef, um, his girlfriend, and another friend that owns the property where we're at right now. And from there, it just blew up. I flew down. We had things going. We were just nickel and diming everything. Um, we, we took this old house that had been closed down for like 30 years. Um, we kept the floor. We kept the roof. The roof was all wooden with clay. Um, what's it called? Like a clay shelving that's still on the roof today. We restored all the old wood in the in the roof. So you walk into the place and it's just three tables and 10 seats at the chef's table. And the, and the kitchen uses white light and the bar uses a white light and they're connected. So when you sit at the bar, you see the distinguished, the, 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 the difference between the bar and the kitchen with different lights, but they're all the same. It's mm. something that was important for us to emphasize because Panama it was more about going out to eat and just drinking whatever was on the menu or drinking the same classic wines that everybody's has been drinking for the last 30 years or whatnot. And we had a mission that we had to push the idea of how important a bar program, a beverage program was 
is in a restaurant because that wasn't emphasized in Panama. Panama just have all the classic wines, have margaritas, mojitos, and some other cock, and that was it, nothing mm. else. So we had this mission in our minds that we had to push local produce, make it fun, do tasting menus and a la carte, which you usually don't see because of the work that goes behind sure. it. We had one sk- one four stovetop with four heads, a grill, and jakitori, uh, these little cement, like little grill, Japanese grills, and that was it. And we opened the register with like twenty dollars and change. <laughs> Carlos had that and sounds familiar. <laughs> it was insane, insane. And then um, from there, it just blew up. I mean, we had a guy come in and sit at the restaurant that worked for the New York Times. He was writing an article about Panama. We weren't. We had probably been open for like three weeks. Um, this guy's name is Nicholas Gill. And he comes in, he sits down, and he has dinner, pays the bill, and then we find out that he's a writer. And we're like, oh, cool, blah, blah, blah. He comes in the following day, does a little interview, and it goes from him writing about Panama to only writing about us in the oh. New York Times. And oh, that wow. was just... That's crazy. That blew up. It was a blessing. Like, you have no idea because everybody in Panama started rushing to the restaurant. It was just crazy and trying to get people to understand that just because the place is rustic and we didn't have white linen, but we had created, we had worked with some local, what's, I'm thinking in Spanish, my bad, um, guys that work with wood carpenters. Yes. So we, we were, we had worked, we worked with a couple of local carpenters that made these crazy, beautiful tables for us from local wood that was salvaged from other places and created a beautiful cement bar. Then we just took poxy and, and just smeared it all over. So it looked like it glistened and it was just insane. And, and people loved it and they still do. Thank God. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's been crazy. And it's been a good and a really, really good experience the following year. And uh, these culinary local culinary awards, we won best restaurant, best chef, best, best beverage program, best service, just one after the other. And, wow. and just insane. insane 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 it was crazy uh and something like i always tell people that um you open something wanting to do what you want to do and trying to get people in panama to understand what we were doing without the crazy silverware like we had these hand 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 knives and forks that had come all the way from california and people were like well this is insane and blah 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 and like we would get people that come in dressed up in jimmy shoes and gucci or whatnot like just totally thinking that they're going to sit at white linen and just turn around and leave because they that's what they were looking for and trying mm-hmm. to get people to understand it was just insane and like i always tell people get behind what you believe in tell the story the way it is if you're disciplined push it hard until people start understanding what it is and now nowadays people come here and People drink the wine we want to serve and not the mm-hmm. wine that the local big distributors are trying to push down. Cocktails, you get people sitting at the bar fighting to sit at the bar. Panama had no bar culture. Like sitting at a bar was like, that's what you would do if you were, I don't know if I could say this, but sitting with a hooker or something like yeah. that. That's what people, yeah. that's what people yeah. thought of I've done, when I've done you that sat times. at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what people were thinking about. So then we started doing specials running specials that we only serve at the bar. Then I started, I, yeah. I, I was doing this cocktail called the, the New Strangers Club. The guys from Employees Only came down and opened up a bar called the Strangers Club. But um, I had a cocktail, I had looked into history about the Strangers Club and did this cocktail where we would take cigar smoke and Chanel number no. five, close it in a capsule with a cocktail that was, it was a variation of a Manhattan. But the whole idea behind it was thinking about the smells and the type of cocktail you would drink in the 1940s where this bar was created in the 40s and in mm. Colón on the Caribbean side. But I would only serve that at the bar. So people were like, well, I want this at the table because I'm blah, blah, blah. I'm like, sorry, bro. It's not going to happen. You want to sit amazing. at the bar and people would actually get up from the table and sit at the bar and drink the cocktail. Oh, I love and that. Like, and, and then people started like, you know what? Next time you go for reserving at the bar because then at the bar, you would also get the chef throwing little things that they were working on and feed you like oh, here and right. there. And that's how we captured people. So now today they fight for the bar. 
That's now, now they don't want a table anymore. So that's really smart. Little... That's really smart. I, I love that. And I like I, I and I really like how you were talking about how because I, I just have run into this roadblock a couple times with the places, some of the places that I've opened that like when you try and do something new, no matter what corner of the world you are, when you're trying to do something new for that community, it's a that's a fucking struggle. You really have to like you and you have to stick with it because so I find so many places start out trying to do something new and original and different. And then like when it does, if it doesn't take off right away or if it's really hard at the beginning, they're just like, well, OK, they dumb it down, dumb it down, dumb it down until all of a sudden exactly. you're, just like, you're just like every other fucking place. Exactly. That's that's one of the biggest problems. I think, like you said, it happens worldwide where people get desperate to. I mean, get like we got desperate a couple of times where we we're like, holy shit, what should we change the mm-hmm. format? Because it took it, it was a big learning curve. It was a huge learning curve for people to understand what we were trying to do. And, and like you said, a lot of people start just dumbing it down, changing it little by little. And then at the end, it's just every other restaurant that yeah. you have in the city. And it's like you lost the magic. And that's why I'm big, big. I protest to people who do that. I'm like, dude, stick to your gun, stick to it, stick to it especially in cities because you know people are gonna people might have you on their mind they haven't visited the restaurant yet because in big cities you have a lot of places opening up all the time and and if the place is experimental to them or they think well ah tasty menu blah blah or they went to a place that had a tasty menu and it wasn't that great and it happens sometimes they maybe you hate radishes and radishes was all over that tasty menu Mm. but it's always about giving it a second chance and also waiting for those customers to come around because if you're doing a good job, you're disciplined and you're tasting your food before you put it out. That's my another big pet peeve. Your chef, if you're making cocktails or whatever, you got to taste everything. Mm-hmm. Just don't create something. You no. got to taste it. Tell yourself what's going to be married with that. Let the, let the team know this pairs with this, that and that and trying to push it. And, and that energy stays up there and it, and it transcends to the customers when it comes to the restaurant. Mm-hmm. It transcends completely. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree with you more, and I like I I also agree. Like, yeah, it's it's a really difficult thing to do to not dumb it down and to keep to stay the course because it is, the business is tough. It's and it's very difficult to succeed. But my feeling is always like you'd rather succeed on your own merits than and go down, or like you'd rather sorry you'd rather fail on your own merits than like succeed doing something you hate like uh, it just doesn't uh, like it's not interesting to me but uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is just because this is interests me from someone who builds restaurants and bars here in Canada talk to me a little bit about the red tape you have to go through to open up a place in Panama as opposed to like somewhere like in the U.S. because I know you were around for some of like bars opening up in the U.S. talk to me about the differences there like is it difficult or was it relatively easy? It's super difficult, man. It's super difficult. And then if you're if, like me, when I was in New York, the restaurant group I worked for, the last one, Ravel, there was a ve- it, it had a very strong position in the city, very financially structured. It was just a well-kept engine. When we renovated the place, it was renovated literally every two years. And it was insane how easy it was to get a team come in, renovate the whole bar, and boom, you have a new place. And, and I mean, mild renovations, nothing crazy where it was like million dollars, nothing like that. But it was insane to see these crews come in and just change the aspect of the place, the facade a little bit and how easy it was. It was just it still mesmerizing. When I first got to Panama, I think the first three months I told Carlos, my, my, the chef, I told him, you know what, bud? I think I'm going back because this is insane how slow everything was, everything from construction it's just a very laid back. It's got that Caribbean culture, uh, capitalist, but it's still people are very laid back when it comes to to executing. So trying to get anything done was insane. I kid you not. Six months in, I was like, I'm done. I'm moving back to the States because I couldn't take it. It was just insane. Everything from getting your deliveries, everything from trying to get a couple of chefs together in order to like get this farmer that's keep on producing something it, it, it was just super hard people love flipping things quick and but the culture of execution is just insane then you have the fire brigade that has to come in check the whole place out 
and it is insane trying to get on the same page with these guys. You have the the local municipality. I, I would say the community municipality that has to approve of the project in the neighborhood. They want to make sure it's on a strip club right. or that um, you're selling drugs at the bar and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so you got to jump through a well, lot. Well, if you're going to sell drugs, it should be only at the bar. A lot of If you're going to sell the drugs, only at the bar. Tip your bartender well. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, man. It's crazy. Yeah, it was so insane. But then, like I said, I was so jaded by new york that when i came here because new york everything's quick if yeah. not you're losing money it's, it's just a mentality it's got that whole bull mentality and here in in, in panama was just like wow it was just mm. driving me up the wall trying to get stuff delivered to your door majority of the times you, you have to go out and get it yourself that's like one of the biggest pet peeves like one of my biggest pet peeves the whole execution wise delivery it's just it drives me up the wall yeah, like I'm passionate about right now. How much I no, hate it. <laughs> I understand. Like, I, so um, the bigger problems here in Ontario are during the build, getting all the permits and all that shit, like that, and, and then getting all getting the liquor license. That stuff is really a pain in the ass here. But uh, once you're open, the delivery, like once you're open, it's it's relatively easy as long as you can get people to show up and and drink right yeah, yeah but like as far as deliveries and all that stuff that's that stuff's not really an issue the the hardest part is the opening of the place but you're saying your your problems continue even to like once you're open yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean we, you get used to it it's yeah. just you get used to it and you know it's 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 part of the culture it's part of the culture people are more laid back more relaxed and then you start finding out little niches about like okay this is a guy i'm gonna work with he always brings fresh fish I know, I know for sure he's going to be there. So you just forget about everybody else pretty much. You're like, you're going to stick to the mm. guns and make sure that guy's happy as well. And, and what happens is that that same guy, I know he's making me happy. He's delivering. Um, he's doing his job right. So he, I start recommending him to 10 other restaurants. Right. So then I create an economy for him and he creates this ease for all of us. So that's sure. what's happened throughout the years here. So what, like I said, I was really yeah. jaded in New York. Yeah. Yeah. You're working as a community and the permits here, like I said, like this place should have been built probably within because of the size of it. Like I said, it was only 30 seater, small terrace. We had a huge little mini jungle in the back of, of the restaurant. It, it shouldn't have been that complicated. It should have taken three months. It actually took like eight. Yeah. So it drove us, just drove me up the wall right. and how long it took because here for construction, people, they think more of it like let me milk it the more the most I can instead of you know what I'm gonna jump to the next project. I'm gonna build this quick and jump to the next yeah. project. Here it's let me milk it as much as I can. Right. And it's crazy because there's a lot of construction work in the city. Mm -hmm. Um it's it's like one of the it's one of the pillars of the economy in Panama is construction. Right. Uh, that's crazy, man. That would drive me nuts as well. <laughs> uh, I, so I do want to talk a little bit more about, it sounds like you're, the way you marry the cuisine to the cocktails to the wine is really impressive. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit more about what you're doing there. Like what kind of food are you putting out? What kind of cocktails are you putting out? What sort of wine are you, what do you find works with the food? I'm just kind of interested in what you're doing that way. Because I love the idea that you're like with the spotlights on the kitchen and the bar and like how you're all working together and how is the community taken to all that so one thing that we knew for sure is that we wanted to get into local like just using local produce but also you're using a lot of local tradition into the cuisine the beauty about panama it's it's, it's, it's huge melting pot it's like mm. new york city it's like paris in the sense that we've had all kinds of of, of, of different cultures that were part of the of the system in one one time or another. So um, we had the French for like 20 years um, when they started building the canal. And there's like a lot of slang that still is in the, in the language. Like here, people say buco. Like there's a buco love for you because of buku. Oh and, yeah, <laughs> of, a lot. You know, so so you, you still get a lot of that in the language and in the slang and in the food. And um, the U.S. was here for 100 years, so you get out. There's a huge burger culture here. Oh. But a huge burger culture since the 40s. So, and there's actually competitions where chefs like get at each other, uh, little competitions that occur throughout the year 
um, for the best burger master, chef, etc. And then you also got a, a lot of Asian cuisine, Chinese more than anything, because yeah. China helped build the first railroad in Panama. Then they were also part of the construction of the canal. And then there's just been Chinese here for the last hundred years as well. And then you have Afro-Caribbean that also came with the construction of the canal. And then you just get the local produce and everything. So there's a huge melting pot. So you got a lot to play with. Wow. So like right now we do dim sum on our menu and we work with a local guy that makes his own dim sum every two days. They just make it fresh. And Carlos takes the food and he hacks it. I mean, he, he hacks it in the sense that he does something else to it, adds another layer to it and stuff like that. But we'll play with everything. Like we have a fried chicken. These people love chicken in this country. I mean, it's insane. And Carlos has this recipe from his from his mom and, and he has, he's made this Creole fried chicken with lemon zest and local honey and people die for it. It's insane how crazy people love it, but it's on the menu. We have dry aged steaks that are also locally introduced into the restaurant and, and, and just a little bit of all of that. So, and then you also get a lot of rich flavors from the Creole, from the Caribbean, a lot of anise, a lot of um, sofrito, um, cinnamon, spice. So you got to have those big, spicy, bold wines or wines that fairly adapt very well to everything. Um, and, and that's why we have a couple of, with wines, we like we work with this guy called Telmo Rodriguez um, that we get through a, a friend of ours that brings his own wine and from Spain and just has these beautiful array of different wines that just adapt very well to our food. So we, we play with a lot of, like, we want wine that I don't want to change that much into the menu, but I, I want it to stick and stay strong to, to the flavors of the food. We a lot of garnacha, a lot of bouillé, white wines, Alvarino, Rieslings that just like have that extra kick that accompanies very well with the food. And then with cocktails, what we do is the same. It's just a little bit more of, we want to play with tradition. Like right now we create this cocktail called Temptation. There's a dish on the local, on the on the Caribbean side, called plantains and temptation. And what it is, is these plantains that you slowly cook with strawberry soda, cinnamon, anise, sugarcane syrup. So they mix that all together. Strawberry soda, I'll never understand why. I think it's because of the coloring. Mm. But um, because it, it, it's not, it doesn't taste like strawberries or anything like that. But when you're done cooking the plantains, it's got this beautiful, bright red to it like a marmalade when you're done cooking it or roasting it in, in the oven so then we took that and we made a shrub with it we made a shrub we uh, we reduce it with vinegar we liquefy we blend it in the thermomix and then we take it out we don't cook it down as much and when you when you get it you got this beautiful bright pink cocktail and we add rum agricole with gin and a little bit of gin. We add bitters, angostura, because it has that cinnamon clove kick mm -hmm. that's traditional to the dish. And a little bit of tonic water, and you're out of there. And it's, it's a beautiful cocktail, and it goes super well with the, with the food. And then we just add a little bit of fried plantain chips. And, and, and people love that. Like, you tell mm -hmm. the story about it, and we get a lot of people from outside that come and eat into the restaurant a lot of expats as well that live in the city so being able to tell those stories just takes it up another notch and, and people that are local love that hey you took a dish and turned it into a cocktail and they're like first they're skeptical about it because they're like well this sounds crazy or insane and when they try it and, and you see them falling in love with it and ordering two or three it's beautiful and then we do a lot of highballs too because we we just want the carbonation, we want the we, we want it to stand up, and we want people. If it's a hot day, you want to drink something that directs yourself more into something that has CO two in it or whatnot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that sounds like it. That sounds incredible, and I love how you're just. I mean, I I feel like the, all the different cultures that have come together to sort of form the what's going on there in Panama, like it's like you said, it really opens up your ability to do almost anything exactly yeah exactly that's the beauty of it that we it doesn't it, i mean the we we like staying creative without being crazy or whatnot but there's so much history behind the food that we just 
there's no there's no there's no glass ceiling. I mean, there's no ceiling. There's no rooftop. You, you have so much to do. Like Carlos makes this dish with um, there's a lot. There's a culture of eating beans in in Latin America and more more in Central in Mexico, Colombia, Venezuela. So we took these beans, and I remember when we first when Carlos first made the dish, he glazed it with tamarind, smoked the tamarind, glazed the beans with tamarind. Then he makes his own fresh cheese, puts that on top, and then we pick, he pickles watermelon. Ugh. So you look at this dish, it, it, it's insane because you just have a bed of beans, then a bed of white cheese, pickled watermelon, and um, whey, which is like the liquid part of the cheese when you're making the cheese mm. that people dispose of. He, he takes that and just drizzles it around it. And it's, it's a beautiful dish and the flavor is insane. But people were like, local people were like, well, they're giving me beans and they're telling me that you're fine dining. So what the hell is going on? <laughs> and, and then you would have to tell people like, you know what? If you don't want to try it, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to the table. And if you like it, you, you can pay for it. it. Yeah, yeah. If you're not, I'll keep it and I'll eat it in the back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, like, and they weren't used to that kind of lane. And I do the same thing with wine because a lot of people love drinking their classic wines. But that's that's the lingo I tell people is I trust what we're doing. And people just until this day, that dish is still on the menu as a classic mm. because we can't take it off because people yeah. are coming like, where the hell are the beans? I don't see the beans. <laughs> on the menu. And, and we have to always have it on. Yeah. So but so it's how- cool being able to have that. So how often are you like switching up the menu, the cocktail list, the wine list? We change it every two to three months. In the beginning, we were changing every two to three months. Now we're a little more laid back with it because we, we realized, too, that people were coming in and like seeing something that they saw on Instagram or a friend told them about a dish and they hadn't been able to try it. So we now we do we try to change every four months mm. and we'll slide little dishes here and move other stuff and leave stuff for a little longer. Um, but before it was just hard on every two months for the tasting menu. Now it's 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 seasonal, but we'll let things stay around a little longer than we used to. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, honestly, Robert, the whole joint sounds incredible. I love what you're doing there. I love your whole passion behind it, and and the, the all the thought that you've put into it, from like specials at the bar only to like the way you've worked the lighting. You obviously you've given me a lot to think about, frankly, for new places in the future. But obviously, you've really thought a lot about it and know what you're doing. And you clearly, you, it sounds like you're going to be successful, man. I'm, I'm excited for you. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. I thank you guys, man. It's really, it's really cool being able to be so globalized and you guys being in Canada, me and Panama yeah. and doing this and it's fun. And thank you for having me and thinking about me. And it's been a, a great pleasure and a great conversation. Yeah. I was like missing the beer, but it's because I'm hung over a little bit. For <laughs> we just power through that shit, Robert. <laughs> uh, and the industry podcast, you power through that shit. We'll have you, know you back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm all with you guys on that one, but it's been hell of a weekend. <laughs> oh, my God, man. I'm hurting right now. All right. I loved, loved being with you guys. And it was fun. And, and we're, we're, for sure, we'll be doing something else in the future. Great. And ladies and gentlemen who are listening, if you, when we're allowed to travel again, go to Panama. The restaurant's called Intimo. And uh, Robert Martin, what's your partner's name again? Sorry. Carlos. Carlos Alba. Carlos, yeah. Carlos go, Alba. Go check these guys out. Thanks again. We really appreciate it, Robert. Have a great night. Thank you, Mark. Okay. Have a good night.